my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Joined by American writer, poet, artist, and curator Delano Burroughs. Writing for publications like HuffPost, Delano is from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, the same city as early 20th century Black American sociologist, historian, and Pan-Africanist civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois. He's also the co-founder, that's Delano, of the Black Yard Collective NYC, quote, a support network for Black queer people recovering from the disease of addiction and alcoholism. I look forward to learning more about Mr. Burroughs and what motivates him to embrace who he is while encouraging others to do the same. Hey, Delano, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me tell my story, tell our stories. So much of my journey has been about realizing like my story isn't specific to me and being able to like share honestly and people saying like, oh my God, that's my story too. I think the gift of social media is that we can do this now. We can be in different parts of the world, different parts of the U.S. and still come together. And as you mentioned, find out what makes us still ourselves, but also what binds us together. And form like these communities, you know, as someone who never felt like I belonged to any community, realizing, oh, right. As soon as I start to accept myself, like full heartedly and bring my full, like authentic self, I know that's an overused word connecting with the real me as opposed to this version of myself that I want people to like think, you know, is me. You said overused, but I think we don't use it enough, maybe. I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes with that authentic voice. Do you know the word authentic voice? And I think as Black people or people have different identities, sometimes it can be like, hey, what is my authentic voice when I have different voices in different situations? Because sometimes there's a, a limit to the vulnerability I can show sometimes in certain spaces as a Black man. Well, I definitely like in the last couple of years that I've been learning from stories like yours is that it's important or it's okay for me to pause, as you said, and say, I may not feel safe right now, not physically, because I think a lot of times, which is important, we focus on the physical, but just as important as the emotional and the psychological safety. Right. Especially with what's going on right now. I mean, always, but, you know, there's videos out there. And sometimes it can be with me, this idea like, well, if I don't watch it and prioritize mental health, am I part of the problem because I'm burying my head in the sand and I need to see these brutal images? It's like, no, but I'm not serving anybody if I'm emotionally distraught. I can be compassionate to myself and say, I don't need to watch that. I completely agree. And what helped me with saying that it's okay if I don't feel comfortable and watching these recorded acts of violence is another Black person who talked about it on social media, mm. because I was going through that same struggle of, you know, should I be doing it? Am I for the cause? And just in hearing you reiterate that now, it's, I don't think any different because it's, it's trauma not comparing, but in the same ballpark, a woman being sexually assaulted why would I sit and watch that? We have these images and these, these videos and we give all our attention because there's the video. But 
there's more nuanced ones where it's not so like obvious. And where the conversation about those when this furor dies down, where are all those people? And I know sometimes people can say like, as a black person, how can you not be out there marching every day? It's like, because I don't have the capacity because I can't be that angry. And sometimes what I need to do is just veg out and watch Netflix, take a hot shower, go for a walk in the park. And that's also revolutionary too, because we don't talk about mental health a lot amongst black people. You know, I've interviewed a few people who work in the arena of diversity training, making people more aware of things that are important to know about people in marginalized communities, be they Black or LGBTQ+. But a few of them have said that there's a lot of burnout in that, too, because people are so focused on helping, they don't realize that you have to think of yourself, too. I listened to one of your podcasts, and you were talking about the book by Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons which I love so much. There's something about knowing lots of stuff, you know, in this sort of abstract way, like reading a history book, but then how she focuses in on like a few stories and really seeing all the emotions attached to what's it like being like, hey, I went to school to be a doctor and still I can't get a, a room in a motel. All those like little details that really penetrated me and really connected me to the idea of my ancestors. My ancestors grew up in Alabama, dirt poor. My mom and you know stepdad and people, a whole flock of them from this small town in Alabama moved to the Berkshires in Massachusetts for better lives for themselves and for their kids. That is a history, as she mentioned a few times in that book, that has not really been fully acknowledged and explored. And using the term migration, that the fact that within our own country, you know, as American citizens, we had to migrate similar to people who left during times of impoverishment in Europe and other parts of the world. We had to do that in our own country to find a better life. I recently did a oral history project where I interviewed Black elders in Massachusetts. And one of the people I interviewed was my mom and my aunt, who both grew up in Alabama, and really understanding what it was like for them to move there. My uncle first moved to the Berkshires to work in a elite boarding school in the kitchen. He saved up enough money. He sponsored another person who lived with him until they got money. And this process kept being repeated until there was like 30 people. And then they all like collectively, like, you know, formed this little community. And it's very similar to like the research I've done on immigration and migration, people from Mexico and all these were the sponsorship. And it put it all in this larger context to me. And I was like, oh, right. The stories were so rich and it connected me so much deeper to my mom and to hear her be able to tell these stories, these small stories of, I was going to the beach with my 4-H club and, you know, as a kid, and we accidentally got onto the white side of the beach. Realizing what it was like for my mom as like an eight-year-old, all these like adults, white people and kids yelling the N-word at them. And hearing that in the context of children, similar to, you know, was it, they call it black trauma porn when we mm -hmm. watch these videos. I think, or I perceive sometimes there's a disconnect that this has happened to actual people and in particular to children. Right. And your story of your mom, what she experienced, that's similar to something I heard a guest, Stefano Duke in Italy from Florence, Italy share when he and his sister were five years old in the bus in Italy and having a similar situation in a different language, but being called the N-word and how traumatic that was for him and his sister. I know for myself that I didn't realize I was going through trauma. I mean, most of us don't. This is a newer language we're starting to speak and acknowledge. But at the time, especially growing up in this all-white community, because for me to acknowledge the trauma, what was really going on, these like 
subtleties of racism in this like very liberal white area would also force me to talk about how much pain I was in. Oh, it's not happening. These people are saying that racist stuff to me or always wanting to pat my hair or ask me all these like loaded questions. It's fine. I'm good. That way we're surviving. Mm -hmm. But now, as you said, our language is changing for the better for us. Yeah. And to be able to talk about vulnerability and pain and trauma and shame. Well, before we get going a little too far in this particular topic, I just had a question for you. Your social media handle on Instagram is Theodore Huxtable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know the name, but what's behind choosing that handle? I mean, you know Theodore Huxtable, who is from The Cosby Show. That was this example of like Black success and crossover. And he was like the perfect Black kid. I wanted to be acceptable. Mm -hmm. One of the good Black ones. And so for me, Theodore Huxtable was that. And now by using it, it's about like reframing that because there is no perfection. This is me. I was so unhappy as a kid that I made up a fantasy version of myself. My biological dad was in my life. So all of a sudden, I have a biological dad that lives in New York, in Brooklyn. And he's got money and he has a brownstone and is really the Cosby show, you know? It saddens me now to realize I, I thought the only way to be accepted was to create this happy life for myself that was just fake. And what it did is mm. it prevented me from ever being close to anybody because I was like scared they were going to find out the real me, all with the goal of convincing you that I was worthy of being loved. Yeah, but I like that you're owning it now, which is owning your history, celebrating your history. You know, one of the things I've learned in the last few years with rediscovering writing and even doing this platform. Because I can relate to that of, I wasn't aware that I was hiding, but that's what I was doing because I didn't want to fully accept that I was a Black person from Phoenix, Arizona, or even the way I sounded to some people and the language, not always, but sometimes that was negative around that. And now saying, you know, that's who I am. And if it hasn't changed in this amount of time, maybe I need to stop and say, hello, Eric, how are you? Right. And simply as simple as that, like, hello, hey, hello, Delano. Hello, Eric. Creating this relationship with ourselves. Because like you, I was also, it was so internalized racism, this idea that, oh, I don't fit into these categories of Blackness because of how I speak or dress or my interests. Therefore, I'm not Black. And then I'm gay on top of that. And so I'm all these like different communities, but I'm gay, but I'm Black, but I'm Black, but I'm gay. And then only in recovery, I'm coming up in 11 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Was I able to realize all of that stuff made me who I am? And I have such pride in every part of that. My resilience, you know, the resilience of Black people, reading like Warmth of Other Sons and reading Resilience, realizing I'm part of that legacy of resilience. And it's important for us to reframe these traumas and realizing, but I'm here. You're also an artist. Would that include your paintings behind you? So this is my wall of inspiration. And so the idea is like, I'm right across from my bed. And so when I wake up and go to bed, these are all the things that remind me of how far I've come. There's James Baldwin. There's a photo of my friend, we took that's a sober event. And I just love the black male coming from the water. There's a mask I found when I was in Amsterdam. I overdosed on drugs when I was in Amsterdam. And then I found this mask. There's okay. a little um, drawing I found in Paris. And right up on top is a photo of myself. And what that reminds me is that I can't change the fact that I had traumas and pains and all kinds of stuff and not the best childhood. 
But what I can do is I can make amends to that childhood now and I cannot continue that legacy and push up against fears and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to believe that story because I'm going to make amends to that childhood self, holding hands with that childhood self. I'm like, hey, we're doing this. I like that. But that's the books we read. That's the movies we watch. And so yours is added to that. But to your question, like my art, my art is performance art. Okay. I do a lot of stuff connected to W.B. Du Bois. I do a lot of stuff around race and the way that people are seen. You know, Double B. Du Bois talked a lot about internalizing the idea that your very being is a problem and that mm. double consciousness, Black people are always kind of split in two. There's the thoughts you're having inside, and then there's that other awareness of how you're being perceived and seen. And there's no way around that because that's the world we live in, whether conscious of it or not. I did a performance at Museum of Modern Art where I walked around with this giant Trayvon Martin mask because the museum had just done these efforts, like put more black art on the wall. I was saying, but also you have to think about the ways in which people are welcomed and how people are seen. And even if you have money, how you may not want to be in that museum. And so I walked around and a friend was videotaping with this big mask that had the Trayvon Martin with the gold tooth. Because during their defense of George Zimmerman, they used that photo of him to say, oh, look at him. He has a gold tooth. He's not a good one. He's like a thug. And so I walked around with that mask and it was liberating to do that. So a lot of it is about the nuances of racism, not the videos, but also the ways in which people don't want to address their own stuff. Mm. You know? And so last year I did this thing called the Great Barrington Project. It was connected to, there's a performance artist called Marina Abramovic. But she did this thing in a museum of art like 12 years ago. People could sit across from her and just stare and make eye contact for as long as they wanted. And she does for three months every day around the clock. And I saw it and I was like blown away with the beauty of just people were crying, emotional, just everybody wants to be seen and seen and to have these like beautiful moments. But I was also thought like, what would it be if it was a black person? We talk about the way we speak. I know when I open my mouth, people are kind of like, oh, I didn't expect you to speak like that. <laughs> I can just see in their eyes where they're kind of like, oh. So there's all these preformed notions and we all have them, but to acknowledge how blackness has these certain connotations that the media, the world has you know, imparted upon us. So I did this project in Great Barrington where for a week I sat in public and people were invited to come and make eye contact. And I called it, how do you see a black person? It's next going to be in Pennsylvania and Reading, Pennsylvania in June during their Juneteenth performance. And then I'm talking to some other places about doing it. And then at the end of the event, there is a town hall in which people in that community, this one being Great Barrington, talk about their experiences being Black in the community. And then I had an actor read out those stories and also people who came on stage, you know, talked about their experiences. It was a lot more than I thought it was going to be emotionally. How was it for you? I was trying to like do this project that was going to like show everybody, like teach everybody. But a lot of it was me teaching myself and realizing I'm human and I still struggle sometimes in not speaking what I'm really feeling. Because a lot of people actually sat down for this sit and then they turned it on themselves and started talking about their experiences with race, white people. Okay. They flipped it and I was like, but the project is about how you see black people. But there was this, what we call sometimes the white fragility, the white tears. Well, I don't want to go and comfort them, but also like I'm human and I want to comfort them. And so I was struggling with those moments. And a lot of people drove by in cars saying like, I see you just like I see any black person. I see you like a friend or I see like, like I see any person. I see you like a friend. These are non-black people. 
Right. And I want it to be like, but you don't. And if you don't see me, the Blackness, then you don't see me. My own personal experience with non-Black people is I don't want to teach. Me teaching you how to be a better person, I don't know how to do that because I don't know your story. Right. However, it seems like it still is more powerful when you can just maybe, sounds cheesy to say it, reach one person. I didn't know that I was going to this mentality of trying to teach people. It's always been an idea that this is a long-term work in progress, and I'm learning it and changing it as it goes. And I'll say one of the most profound moments was the longest sit. A white man who came in, I kind of judged him. I looked at his dress. Oh, he looks upper middle class. Why is he coming to sit? And it was the longest sit for like 40 minutes. Wow, just the two of you staring at each other. Mm-hmm. Wow. At first, I was really resistant because he looked like the epitome of privilege. You know, what society would say is a good-looking person. But then something shifted. I saw him, his humanity. Like I practiced like mindfulness and I'd go to all these Buddhist retreats and I, I started practicing this chant that we do, like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe. And I saw him wishing that for me. And we both became teary and emotional. Wow. And it became this conversation just through like sight. And at the end of it, he got up and left. He didn't converse with you? Most people talk before or after. He's the only one that sat down, didn't have to say a word, and then he got up and and left. So I don't have any story behind it. And I kind of like that. 40 minutes. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like a lot of, seems like transference of energy. It is. And it was awkward and uncomfortable. And I realized I was trying to call people out on how they don't see me or see Black people, but also realizing my discomfort with being seen. I've internalized that in like, wait, I'm not worthy of being seen, or what are you seeing? What are you thinking? I found a lot of healing over that project, and I'm looking forward to doing it again in Pennsylvania in June, and then other places, and even I may go to Europe. It's needed here, too. Right. (laughs) As you know, you've been here. Yeah. I was just amazed at the response of people and amazed at the conversations we had at the community town hall, which were just tense. You're talking about W.E.B. Du Bois's double consciousness. And for me, how I kind of describe for myself, but, you know, amongst us, because we still need to talk about how we see ourselves as Black people, I believe, but I describe it as being like a secret agent. I walk into my neighborhood Starbucks. Okay, that table just looked at me. They're still staring Mm -hmm. at me. All right. I just caught the eye of the person behind the counter. So I kind of got a general idea, I believe, of how that energy is going to be when I get to the Mm -hmm. counter. It's like all these things that we're, I think, hyper aware of in our everyday interactions. Oh, I love that. I love that idea of the detective. You're right. You're looking for these clues. Survival. It's not even about paranoia. You actually just have to do that. It's a survival thing. So you've talked a lot about Massachusetts. Is that where you're based? I live in Brooklyn, but I actually just took a job as a racial justice coordinator with this amazing nonprofit called Multicultural Bridge that's connected there. So I'm mostly remote, but I spend one week a month in person. I'm excited about the changes that are happening in that area. There is now a W.B. Du Bois Middle School because W.B. Du Bois grew up there, but only until like the last 25 years did people actually acknowledge that and talk about it. Really? Surprising. There's a lot of resistance to it. Only until 2020 did it really pick up momentum, and that's when they named the school. 2020? Mm-hmm. Post-George Floyd. Wow. That's when they named the school W.B. Du Bois. I'm actually going to give a talk at the, the middle school soon and talk about my project to see, like, at that school, they have a queer alliance. You know, it's a school, 200 students in rural Massachusetts. 
And there's like 60 students that are, you know, in this. They have a racial awareness alliance, you know, racial justice. And to be able to see the youth and what's going on and their commitment to having these conversations about identity, it's really inspiring. And in communities like the Berkshires where people, there's that nuance of race where people like to, well, I voted for this person and I'm super liberal and I, you know, do this and that, but like, so I don't want to talk about my own, where I might little, little race, you know, issues going on. I wrote it down actually, where you talked about liberalism and how that can be in some ways worse because a person or a group says, oh, well, I don't believe it in racism or I don't discriminate in my everyday life. But we know as Black people, it's so much more nuanced than that. Right. I believe most non-Black people know that too, because you don't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. And they know it, but knowing and acknowledging and admitting can be, you know, different things. I think of like the Christian Cooper situation in Central Park. He was the bird watcher. And then the woman called. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Because if there was no video of that, it's not really translatable. People could be like, wait, you said she looked at you a certain way? Or she said African-American a certain way? Are you over-exaggerating? Yeah. Are you a little hypersensitive, maybe? <laughs> yeah, you're a little hypersensitive. But then we saw that video and we realized, oh, wow. But also there was like the class issue and all that kind of stuff. Because it's also, well, he was like Harvard educated and he speaks this way. Like how crazy is it that she would think he's like, but what if he hadn't gone to Harvard? What if he spoke with, you know, a more Southern dialect? Right. Would we like give it attention? Would we believe this guy's a bird watcher? Speaking of education, what's your educational background? So I quit school in 11th grade. A lot of it was trauma from growing up there. I was really struggling with the social dynamics of being in school. And the teachers would always say, he's great, but he, the interaction, he just couldn't deal. And it was really not me being able to deal with like my true self. After that, after I left, I went to community college and studied painting. And then I studied photography in New Mexico. And then when I went into recovery, I always had dreams of being a writer. And I wanted to write, but I was like, my time has passed. It's too late. And then I got this amazing group of Black queer people in recovery who formed Icantina, which later turned into Black Art Collective. They were like, you know what? You've got a lot to say. You need to go back to school. And I was like, girl, that ship has sailed. <laughs> and they really encouraged me. And I found this program with Bard College, specifically for people that have left school for different reasons. And I applied and I got in. And it was the best thing I've ever done. And I discovered performance art. And I just studied all these like reading people, like these poets like June Jordan and Bell Hooks and Claudia Rankin and James Baldwin had always loved and realized I'm like, oh, wow, I can write my true story and it doesn't have to fit into an idea of what writing can be or poetry could be. I can still be myself and have to follow these rules, but also I could break some of the rules too. And performance art was just, first time I did it, I was like, this is higher than I was when I was doing drugs, you know? And once again, the ways that shame manifests, I didn't start telling people that until like this past year. I had so much shame about it and realizing the ways that I still can be like, well, I can't tell that, what are they gonna think? Because people like hear me speak and they make these assumptions and I'm trying to fit into the Theodore Huxtable model and being like, well, that's not me, I'm Delana Burroughs, you know? I have to use that for myself because I, I can relate to that. I dropped out of college 
moved to LA to be an actor mm-hmm. and didn't share about that for years. And to your point of persona, I'm aware enough, not necessarily in my everyday being conscious of that, but I'm aware enough to know of how I can be perceived. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell that for years, but I did go back to school. I went to a community college in LA County. Mm-hmm. But even to that point, me saying community college in LA County doesn't sound prestigious enough. It's like, well, who's judging who? Mm. I'm judging myself. Would you like actively lie about it or was it just kind of like lie by mission? Like, well, let's change the subject. It was lie through omission. Yeah. And being more of a quiet person, it was probably a survival technique in childhood. I'm more conscious of it now, but aware definitely at a certain point in my life that, oh, well, if I don't say anything, we'll just let them assume whatever. Right, right. You mentioned the Black Yard Collective NYC, which is a recovery-based organization. Can you share more about that? Yeah. So when we came into recovery, the spaces were really white. And I guess in a way, this goes back to what we started off talking about the word authentic, which I think is an amazing word. But also for some of us, we don't have spaces in which we can speak those or feel comfortable. And it's a process to get there. The thing about recovery is they say, come in and be vulnerable and share all your stuff. And it's like, but also I'm going into rooms of mostly white gay men who've sexualized and categorized me and, you know, in different ways. And I'm culpable in many ways to like play into that. And it's like, well, there's a limit to how much vulnerability I'm going to give. So about six years ago, a few of us were like, hey, you know, there aren't that many black people and we all know each other, but we don't really know each other. So let's get together for a brunch. And we started doing that, and there were like seven of us. We started to open up and talk about stuff we realized so much shame about, things we never felt comfortable, like internalized racism and colorism and all kinds of stuff. And then they became bigger, and they became monthly, and different people would host them. Mm. And people were like, oh my God, this is changing like my recovery. And then during the pandemic, we turned it into a virtual meeting. And now we have people from all over the world that show up, and we've done retreats. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've done retreats. We've done two in Provincetown. And seeing like 30 Black queer people going down, mostly white Provincetown, it was crazy. Like people were stopping literally in their tracks being like, these people are laughing and enjoying themselves. A group of Black people just outside the context of whiteness. And it was liberating for us. And we've done like Juneteenth events. And we've done like the theater. A couple of weeks ago, we did Strange Loop for the second time a Black queer play here in New York that won the Pulitzer Prize and the the Tony. We decided, let's turn this into a nonprofit. Let's make this even bigger. And so we're officially a nonprofit and we're in the like raising money stage right now, the Black Yard Collective, nyc.com, .org, .org. (laughs) The ultimate goal is in like three years to have a Black queer sober conference. Right now, the immediate goal is to do like mutual aid have more of these events and make them more accessible to people of all different like financial means. So it's not just like, hey, let's get together and talk about our traumas. Let's get together and celebrate. Do you know, let's get to go to go to the museum. Let's get together and laugh and go to the park. And that's part of recovery, you know, that healing and that community. I have some of the closest friends that I ever imagined I could ever have in in these like black queer addicts. Mm. I want that experience for like everybody to be like, oh, I can be my true self just like trust themselves and it's not easy but it's worth it one of the people that went to strange loop she had never been to the theater before to be a play she's a trans woman and this play has trans characters in it and she's like oh my god to go to the play 
and to see someone that looks and is like me on stage, it's given me so much and it meant so much. And to me, that's what like Black Yard Collective is about. I'll definitely have to ask you more about that after this call. Of course, the recovery community, but also just in general within the LGBTQ plus community, even this platform. You know, when I first started to discuss the idea and some people intrigued, like, well, why would you need to do that? Mm-hmm. Either in the LGBT community or even in the Black community. Well, I thought you guys were fine because that's one of the things that I've been educated on these last almost two years is, you know, Black people who I believe are allies, but they assume like, oh, well, we see these shows, we see these programs. I was like, but do you really see us? Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you see us? That hits home. And then just the beauty of the story with the woman that you just mentioned, who that sense of pride of seeing somebody that looks similar to you in media, because I always say media educates, you know, definitely me being here in Europe as an American, we don't realize how very Eurocentric we are Mm. and that our concept of art, music, I think we have a little bit of a influence in as far as Black Americans in particular, but even still, we don't have the power because as you know, traveling outside of the U.S., Black American music is global, mm-hmm. which means it's making a lot of money, which also we know means most of the people that are making that music are not making that money. Exactly. But, you know, back to media representation, just to hear what you're doing with the Black Yard Collective, NYC, it just really warms my heart. Oh, thank you. It warms my heart, too. Like, to see people together in community who never felt like they belonged is mind-blowing to see people connecting in such this profound way with themselves and with each other and something bigger themselves, realizing the power of community. Together, like also walking down that street in Provincetown together, it's magical. There's like light and energy and you got people from like Switzerland that show up in Canada and different places and all over the States. And to be able to take it to another level, just I never thought I'd be involved with something like that, that we could be part of something like that. Yeah, and to challenge the community at large, the LGBT community at large, because the vision I get with you guys in Provincetown is, I may be perceiving, but that initial sometimes energy, I've kind of sent sometimes of, why are you here? Right. It's like, well, you said we belong here, so why wouldn't I be here? You know, we're really confused that we had so much attention. I'm not kidding. It was like being a celebrity when we're that group. You look back and like they're like a half mile down and still just like staring or taking photos. And we talked to the owner of the guest house and it's the only guest house in P-Town, John Randall House, that's owned by a black person. And he said, do you know what it is? They're used to like black people in the context of other white people in this place, but it throws them for a loop to see a bunch of black people laughing and enjoying themselves without the context of whiteness around. I went through that last summer. I'm part of a group here, Black Men, Gay and Straight. And we had a get together last July in a trendy restaurant in Soho in London. And we really were immersed in this amazing conversation. And then every now and again, I kind of look around just casually. To your point, it's like, oh, we're on display here. Mm -hmm. What's going on? What's our story? How long have you lived in Europe? I'm a digital nomad right now, mostly for the last three years, but my goal is to live in Stockholm. That's the first choice. But I've been here in Brighton mm-hmm. since last November, consistently since last November. Okay. And I have to admit, I really like it here. And I came here through Pierre Monerville, who's a French photographer uh, who I interviewed for episode five. 
but I was back in the States last year for seven months. I want to get to your writing. You wrote a piece in November 2021 for HuffPost titled, My White Teacher Used a POC Pen Name to Sell Her Book. Should I Have Outed Her? Very, very candid and emotional piece for me reading it. How was it for you writing it? It was scary to write it. Going deeper to like writing a story that was my truth. I talked about my struggle with speaking up about race. I was worried because the editor told me, you know, stories like this about race and stuff. Be prepared. You're going to get a lot of pushback. From the people on staff? Not on staff. They loved it. Okay. And the comments. And it was one of their most commented stories of the year. And actually, if you go on now, I think it's 450 comments, but there were more than 500 because they had to take some away because they were so negative. My friend told me, don't continue reading. They were really brutal. And I got it also from some Black people too. You know, not many, but saying like you weren't angry enough or you gave her too much. I'm getting it from every direction, but I knew it was from a place of truth. Yeah. And I knew if I wrote it and trying to be someone else, that wouldn't have felt authentic. And I realized how much stronger I am. Everybody's not going to accept me. If I speak from a place of truth and authenticity, there is no way everybody's going to agree, especially the more my voice becomes vocal. And for someone who as a kid was almost mute, I was so shy. Social anxiety, that's why I left high school, the social anxiety. I can speak. And now to be able to like come into my own and speak from a place of truth and be like, all right, I can weather this. I got pushed back about the art project, the Great Barrington Project. Some of it valid. And I'm growing, you know, and learning and being like, oh, okay, I can take criticism. I got literary agents, like, when you're ready, we're interested in you writing a book. Big literary agencies. Congratulations. But also post that is I went into, like, this pretender mode or this fear of, like, oh, my God, everyone's going to figure me out. That's all I had in me. They're going to reject me. Let me stay in my safe place. But talking to other people in the Blackyard Collective, et cetera, I'm keeping going forward, you know. The art project has got a lot of attention that I didn't expect. Going into that more of being a more public person, it brings up a lot. Standing up to yourself, or at least that's what I'm learning. Yeah. For me, the piece was so relatable because that was an extreme in some ways, but I can relate working in corporate America for years and being in these situations and these moments where I think every Black person, if we look behind our own curtain, can relate to something like that where you're the only Black person. Mm -hmm. Because the way you describe to your gift as a writer, I was there when you talked about how you just look straight ahead Mm. in those moments. You know, I've been there where you just have this dialogue like, no, I can't be crazy. I cannot be crazy. (laughs) And sometimes I can adopt this idea that I have to represent all Blackness to people. And if I get angry, they're going to they're going to judge all Black people. You know, just like almost every Black person I know, at least in the States, when there's like this really egregious crime or something, the first thought is, you know, please don't let them be Black. Please don't, please let, them don't black. let them be Black. <laughs> God, don't let them be Black. And it's like, why? Why do I care? But I do. Yeah. I try to push back or find ways to push back of not being the, the representation of millions of Black people across the planet. Right. <laughs> Here in Europe, sometimes people who I could tell are well-intentioned. Like, I remember someone asking me, well, how do you do locks? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a hairstylist. I never (laughs) had that look. So, you know, maybe Google it. (laughs) Google is our friend, people. Google is our friend. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah, I thought it was a very well-written piece. And the fact that it was received both positively and negatively for me shows that it was it was necessary to write it. I will say outside of like the, the comments, a lot of people messaged me through social media and such that were super positive. A month after that, I did the Humans of New York. This is an international blog that has like 15 million followers. And I came out publicly as a crystal meth addict. I had like thousands and thousands of comments of support coming from like, I'm not going to show anything to anybody. And within one month period, I was talking about my race stuff. And then I was talking about the addiction stuff. It felt liberating to be like, wow, my real self is out there. A t-shirt, my real self is out there. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. You know, you're also a poet. Mm -hmm. I found your piece, When I'm Not Black, another great piece. And I really like how you, with each paragraph, and one of them, well, the first one, which starts off with, when I'm not black, I'm waking up. Mm. That was published in June 2020. Was this inspired, because we know what was going on around that time, was this inspired by the explosion that happened after the public recording of George Floyd's murder? That was actually a coincidence that was published at the time. It was accepted on March 10th, 2020, which happened to be my sober date. It was a a beautiful present for myself. Many months before that, they said that it was going to be published at the time. And then all those events happened. I was living in Brooklyn. Stepdad had died. My mom was by herself. And I went back to Massachusetts and wound up being there for five months. So Black Lives Matter stuff was happening and people marching all over the world. And I'm in this all-white town dealing with race stuff. And then those poems came out. And once again, I was just blown away with the response. Messages of people saying like, oh, that's my story. And realizing the power of telling our stories, the uncomfortable stories, and connecting, once again, connecting to myself and connecting to others. Realizing that I can see the beauty in my experiences. I can write about them in a way that's poetic. I can create like language and rhythm to stuff that wasn't so. And that's my journey, really, about, hey, I went through some bad stuff. I went through some trauma. We all have. I can transform it through art, through my writing, through poetry, the way that I walk through the world, the way that I connect with community, the way that I celebrate and laugh with friends. Very much so. I used to say, I become Black when I leave my apartment, when I lived in L.A., That's when I become black, when I walk down the street, go get whatever I need at Trader Joe's, and I catch a look from a white woman. I'm like, all right, I'm black. (laughs) We know it. Or uh, interviewing Stefano in Italy, and we had a moment where you're like, you got your list going, emotionally prepared. Today's the day I'm going to do my grocery shopping. And then you go out, you, you know, you're walking, and then you see that look. And it's like, not today. Right. Not today. <laughs> I was feeling myself. I'm looking good, feeling like connected to the world. And there's that look. And then I know about you, then it follows up. I can sometimes turn on myself like, why do you care? Why are you letting that person give them that power? And just realizing then I have to practice compassion. Just be kind to myself. If I can be kind to myself, that's healing and that's progress. For me, it goes back. It's an act of violence. Mm. That's how I frame it now for myself so that I can work on healing myself. That is an act of violence. Mm. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The way you look at me or the energy that you give me is not positive, so then it's negative. Oh, wow. I like that reframing. Ooh, I'm going to be writing in my journal about that later. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that with this poem, because I just was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Aw. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. To kind of touch back a little bit, because you just mentioned it about Black Lives Matters and the marches and all that stuff. And it's great to get the allyship and all those things. But something that you wrote or that was written about you in May 2022 article with the Berkshire Eagle or Berkshire or Berkshire. Berkshire. Mm-hmm. Berkshire, thank you. Written by Heather Bellow, mm-hmm. you shared your insights on non-Blacks who marched in these movements. And you said, quote, it would allow white people to congratulate themselves on their wokeness. The truth is, is that liberals can often be the worst offenders. You think voting for X and attending BLM protests grants you freedom from looking at your own biases. Believe me, you have them. I like that you put that in print. So much of what I'm doing is started from that letter to the editor. That letter became kind of mini viral and was shared like a couple of thousand times to this like little local paper. People started messaging like, oh my God, that's my story. That was the scariest to put that out there. And realizing like, oh, this is the community I live in. This community, my family, my mom still lives in. What are the repercussions for her? Because I get to leave and go back to New York. I kept it to like, this is how I'm seeing it. I wasn't saying you're a bad person. I was in Stockholm when that happened. What shocked me was there were marches there. But it was beautiful in a way because it was a lot of the ethnic minorities in Sweden. And I have a friend there who's Black and she share it like, yeah, this happens here too. So that was eye-opening for me, like truly eye-opening. On social media, all of a sudden, you know, at that time, didn't have this platform. I didn't have this podcast. You know, I was writing sporadically, but I wasn't really posting. All of a sudden, I was really popular. At first, you know, my ego got like, oh, okay, this person. And I was like, well, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> and to relate it to when you say like a crime happens and as a Black person, you go, oh shit, please don't let it be a Black person that did it. And the other camp is a white person. When these people were, you know, making their profiles black and, oh, I support you, I love you. In my mind, I was like, how long is this going to last? And to that point, Eric, I'm always fascinated at when is the moment you decide I can take the sign down? When is the moment? (laughs) When is the moment? You know what? In the last two weeks, those black lives, they started mattering. I can take the sign out of the yard. All black Facebook posts. Let me go back to the picture of me at the beach. But seriously, what is that moment when you're just like, oh, yeah, let me just switch it back. And so, yes, it is great that people are out there and supporting. And yes, some of us are performative. It was powerful to see people in Paris and all over you know, the world marching. What about the rest of the time of the year? The structural and institutional, all that stuff that led into George Floyd, that's still there. I don't know if it was that piece, but you also wrote to that about how Yeah, that's something that people really can stand behind. But when you share a personal experience, the eyes glaze over. Right. When I talked about what it was like for me to grow up there. I'm saying his name because I don't want to take credit for it, but Gamal Tarawa, or G as he goes by here in the UK, he posed a really good thing that I think he uses in, in some of his work was like, you know, we get a lot like, what is it like to be Black? But to say, what is it like to be white? Yeah. I was in a a conference yesterday on doing racism for my work. And at the end of it, we identified what culture we were. We talked about what do you like about your race? And it was interesting Mm. to hear Black people talking about like things of like music and, you know, some really joyous, but white people were talking about like be able to go to the store and not be followed around. There is a culture. We all have cultures. But realizing how intrinsically that culture 
is tied into white supremacy in a relation to this hierarchical thing in which other people are on the bottom. Oh, the power of language. My aunt, my mom's sister is a retired librarian. And one of the things she used to say to me that I'm using more now in Europe, because we talk about ethnicity, at least in the States, and even here in some ways in relation to ethnic minorities. In the States, everybody is an ethnic group. There's Italians, there's Irish. And so she's always said, find a way to weave into the conversation, oh, what's your ethnic background? Do you do that? I don't think about it. I'm relating so much again to you really coming to terms with your gifts, needing to share your truths, and how that's helping you, of course, professionally, but how it's helping others. So now I'm a bit more conscious of that and saying, you know, I need to do that more often. Yeah. What's the next step for you in doing that? Ooh, now I'm asking you the questions. <laughs> to um, keep this conversation in mind, it's a really good question. To pause when I'm around a certain energy, because I think sometimes still connected to that survival is like I'm aware that I'm sometimes editing myself, not so much in how I speak, but maybe what I want to say, maybe pausing in those moments and saying, no, let this marinate for a second so then I can ask this question and not worry about the white fragility, because I think I still worry about that. But maybe in that pause, I can say like, all right, this time I'm going to push back. Sometimes I won't, but I'm doing the best I can, you know? What's it like for you to be in Sweden when like these big, like, you know, like the, the video that's out right now, how do you connect? For the George Floyd, I haven't really watched it just for my own protection, my emotional well-being, because I saw the Philando Castile one, and that one wrecked me, even thinking about it. just, for me, what that demonstrates is those individual police officers not seeing that man and his wife or girlfriend and that poor little girl as human. And to your point of Black Lives Matter and then how long can I do this before I put these placards back into the closet, that particular killing that was recorded, people should still be in up in arms about that today. With this most recent one, I, I'm not going to watch it because I don't think watching it helps it. It's important for some people, but for me, we have 400 plus years of transatlantic slave trade, colonialism. We have enough data. We already know that people who are marginalized or who are invaded, these countries that are invaded, because we, you know, again, with language, we don't use the language that colonialism was invasion, pure and simple. You know, being here in Europe, you know, meeting people who are from Nigeria, from Ghana, really being educated and hearing these stories from people who came from these countries, who know their histories in the way that Black Americans, we don't, but hearing that they didn't experience necessarily slavery, but they experienced these European powers coming in and invading their lands. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, for me personally, protecting myself, I perceive sometimes that they think Americans in general and Black Americans in particular don't want to hear their history. And I tell people, I want to hear it because I need to know. Do you ever feel disconnected being over there and the stuff is going on here? No, I don't. It's like, what do they say? You can take the country out of the girl. No, I'm always <laughs> going to be Black American. <laughs> Wherever you go. I'm learning that I may not need to talk to this particular person because they just will not get it. Uh, several years ago... 
I was looking, you know, just briefly for an apartment. And the first time I was blatantly sexually harassed and it was by the person I was going to potentially rent from. And it was very jarring. It was the first time as a man, not as a black man, but as a man, I was conscious of my surroundings. I was concerned about my physical safety. But when I shared that with my sisters and with female family members or with female friends, they said pretty much welcome to womanhood. And for me, that made me realize for the first time, we could be on the same street walking down together and a woman is going to experience something completely different from what I'm going to experience as a man. And as a Black man, yeah, I, I will still need to run things through the filter, but I'm no longer going to allow you to minimize. I've lived in this body. I walk around in this body every day, so I think I know what I experience. Well, I want to thank you so much and ask if you have any final thoughts or insights. I love that you have this podcast. This is amazing. And to hear those voices is so powerful, not from just me, but like those kids out there. Like I've never met you and I'm like, already, I've just told you all kinds of stuff going on and feel comfortable. This is beautiful. And also to be able to create a narrative, realizing like all of my different like life experiences, people talking to you, like they're all connected. And the importance of understanding that we don't just live isolated events. They're all connected. And our healing is connected. I love your candor, and I'm going to use it as an example for how I need to continue to do that. You didn't ask me, but I'm going to say, you know, because you shared about, you know, your educational background and that you didn't think you could be a writer, but that's what pulled me into you. So I'll just say to you, you do have that gift, and it definitely is impacting people through some of the stories that you shared. So, you know, thank you for being that example. Thank you, Eric. I'm really happy you asked me. I found you online, of course, but where else can we find you uh, apart from Instagram? Well, Instagram, I'm Theodore Huxtable. <laughs> but also the project, if you want to read more about the art project and also about me, thegreatbarringtonproject.com and the Blackyard Collective, nyc.org. Right now I'm on the, a three-person panel that's going to decide on the first statue ever of W.B. Du Bois. And if you want to read more about that project, it's called the W.B. Du Bois Sculpture Project. I think it's .org, but it could be .com. Oh, and on uh, February 20th, I, I was picked. This is like crazy big news. They haven't done the PR. I was selected to give the 2023 W.B. Du Bois Lecture at Simons Rock Bard College. I was like, you're picking me? Like the past people have been like the head of the NACP, Pulitzer Prize winners, Lonnie Guineer, the Supreme Court Justice nominee. And this year they picked someone who quit school in 11th grade. Somebody nominated me. And then when I met with them, they said, because your realness, your authenticity. And just once again, it's a lesson of just how I connect as being myself. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.